the second half of Nehemiah. And here's what we see. This is, there's a pattern between Ezra and Nehemiah. These, these were written with kind of a pattern in mind. You, you have the first half of each of these books uh, about rebuilding something. So in Ezra, it was rebuilding a temple. And in Nehemiah, it's rebuilding these walls around the city of Jerusalem. And then you turn to the second half of the book and it stops being about rebuilding and it becomes about reforming and reforming the people. So this is the pattern. You have the rebuilding of something and then the reforming of people. Um, and that's what we're seeing again. So chapter eight is the turning point in, in Nehemiah. It's about the halfway point in the book. And we've seen the, the walls around Jerusalem be completed. And now we're going to see the people of Israel being rebuilt and reformed as well. And so uh, it's not so much about the physical rebuilding. It's ultimately that the physical rebuilding of these things represents what we ought to be seeing the Lord do in our lives and re- in rebuilding us as human beings who uh, are meant to have right relationship with him. So we see the pattern rebuilt building or wall rebuilt people. Um, and what we see here in this chapter and where it starts is that we are rebuilt first and foremost around the word of God, that God's word takes the, the priority and the precedence of, of uh, doing that work of rebuilding our lives and reforming us. Um, this is a pattern we see over and over again in the scriptures, but we also see it throughout history. We, we see God sovereignly working in human history to draw people back to his word. We saw it 500 or so years ago in 1517 when Martin Luther challenged the Roman Catholic Church and what was happening at that time in, in that church and as a, as a priest and a, and a monk in that church calling them to repentance and being brought back to the word of God, which ultimately sparked a movement called the Reformation. Uh, and that Reformation was built around the Bible. There were basically five tenets to the Reformation that we've kind of gleaned. At, it was never like laid out in writing by any of the reformers, but essentially these five points uh, are what the, uh, what the Reformation was about. And the first of them is sola scriptura, which was Latin for scripture alone. The first main tenet of the Reformation is that the scriptures are our authority and they are what we have to align our lives to, not to the popes, not to tradition of the church, not to our own whims or our own minds or our own thoughts, but the Bible. The Bible is our authority and we must be reformed around it and allow it to work. And so what we see in in this passage is that happening in the Old Testament. But what we see for ourselves is that a gospel-centered church, a church that's that's centered around the work of Christ, is fundamentally a Bible-centered church. You can't have a gospel-centered church if the Bible is not the the primary focal point of what we're doing And because the Bible gets us to Jesus. It gets us to his work. It's the only way we know about him and what he's done to save us. And so we see the importance of the Bible in this passage. We see specifically the importance of the Bible being preached, taught, explained, and applied. And as we work through this text, we're going to see that. And I know that the idea of preaching is kind of a strange thing. There's really not very many things outside of the church uh, where you would go and sit and listen to a monologue for 
30 minutes. And, and we live in a time where it's much, much better for us or we feel better about speaking than we do listening. All of us fall into that. But that's not a new problem. Uh, it, the, preaching has been kind of a, uh, uh, an, not embraced very well throughout history. And in 1857, there was a novelist named Anthony Trollope who wrote this, uh, there's perhaps no greater hardship at present inflicted on mankind in civilized and free countries than the necessity of listening to sermons. So <laughs> no greater hardship than doing what you're doing right now. And I'm so sorry for that. No, I'm, I'm not. Uh, but um, he goes on to describe the preaching clergyman as the bore of the age. And so I guess that's going to be my new job description, um, the bore of the age. No, this, it's, it's, it was true back in the 1850s. It's, it's true now. Preaching is not something that uh, we, we necessarily want to rally around. And that's okay, I guess, in, in a sense. But as Christians, it's not about a man that we're listening to. It's not about a person that we're listening to. It is about the word of God, though. And the, and the word of God stays the same. People come and go. Uh, my job is, uh, one, one ancient uh, Christian said, preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. And, and that, is, that is my goal in life too. That's, that should be every pastor, every preacher, every minister's goal is to preach the gospel, die, and then be forgotten because it's about Christ, not about us. Um, but but as, we, as we go into the word of God, we should be eager to listen to it and eager to hear what God has to say. And so we're going to see that pattern here in, in Ezra, or excuse me, in Nehemiah uh, 8. So let's get into the text here. We're going to look at the first eight verses. This, this passage is basically broken down into three sections. Um, the first eight verses is section one, and then nine through 12, and then 13 through 18. Uh, we'll look at each of these in, in turn, but uh, verse one to eight, let me read it for us. I'll read it all, and then we'll step back and talk about what we're, what we're seeing here. It says, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. Different water gate. Okay, not Nixon's water gate. Um, different water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from, from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattatiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashabenez, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Yeshua, Bani, Serabiah, Yaman, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, 
clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Here's what's happening. We, we can step back and look at three things in this first passage, but the overarching point of this section is that there is the people being centrally uh, placed around the word of God. The word of God is center in this reforming of the people of Israel. Now that the walls have been rebuilt, it's time for the people to be reformed and the people are being reformed through the word of God. Look at verse one and two again. It says, and all the people gathered as one man, meaning they were unified in this purpose. They were all coming together for the same purpose into the square. So in in this public place before the water gate and they told Ezra, the scribe. Remember, Ezra is a scribe and a priest. Nehemiah is a governor and a leader uh, in, that, in that physical rebuilding of, of what's happening. And Ezra and Nehemiah basically form a team. They're, they're together in this and they have different operating purposes and different roles. But Ezra's role was that of a scribe, meaning he understood the scriptures and he, he was there to teach it. And so That was his job. And Nehemiah's job was less so about the teaching and more about the governing and leading. But here Ezra shows up in the story again. And Ezra, the scribe, they they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. So as one man unified together, men, women, uh, this, there's a mention of people who can understand what they heard. So presumably older children, uh, or perhaps uh, people who weren't a part of Israel and were brought in as they wanted, to, they wanted to learn about these things. It's not real clear on who those people are, but um, these people all gather together and, 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 and here's what they're co- coming together to do, to learn what God's word has to say. They're unified under his word. They're coming together as one man to hear God speak through the book that God wrote through Moses. And of course, we have much more of that book than, than they did. But, but they have what they have and they're gathered around it and they tell Ezra, bring the book, open it up, let's listen to it. And so they are unified in this way and And this is really what the local church continues to represent. It is the gathering of Christians in a particular location around the Bible. And yes, there's other things that we do as a church. We fellowship and we we worship through song. And there's lots of things that the church does and and how we help each other and care for each other. But, But the primary purpose of the church is to get into the Bible together, to read it, to understand it, to help apply it. And that's why the church matters. We can't get this alone. And I think the key, the key thing is that you don't see each person just being put into their own little house with their own Bible and said, Here, here's your copy, you study it. Now, that's a good thing to do. But there's also a purpose of community gathering around the word of God. And that's why the, the church should, should be a priority. It's, it's not just our individual walk with Jesus that matters, although that does matter. It's not just that, though. It's also the community of faith gathering together for this purpose and, and helping each other love Jesus.
better because we do need one another as we'll, as we've seen and we will I'll point out in this text. But we see so we see the the unity around it that they gather for the purpose of hearing the word. Secondly, we see in verse 3 that they give their attention to the word of God. It says, "And Ezra read from it the book of of the law facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. That's six hours of Bible reading. We're going to practice that today. No, we're not. Uh, 30 minutes is nothing. This is six hours of reading the Bible uh, publicly. And it's, it's amazing. And here they are. And again, this isn't an everyday thing. They didn't do this every single day. This was a, this was a, a, a moment in time, right? But here they gather and, and they are reading, or Ezra's reading, from the book, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And here's the key verse, and the, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. All, all of their ears were attentive. This is where they're sitting down to listen to God's word and they're paying attention to it. And, and they must have had much longer attention spans than most of us do. But we, we need to, again, practice these things and, and grow in this, uh, this attentiveness. And attention is actually something that is learned. It's something that we mature in. And, and these people were sitting there to listen. And we need to be attentive to what God says too, of course, right? Because it, being attentive to it is how we can apply it to our lives. And that's what we see in the next section in verse four through eight we see the people help one another understand and apply the word of God. Without having to read through all these names again, um, Ezra has 13 men, um, half, roughly half on one side of him, roughly half on the other side. And then he's got a whole bunch of Levites uh, that their names are mentioned as well from verse, in verse seven. And you have all these people who are, who are going around through the, the crowd, and are helping people understand what they're hearing Ezra read. It says that Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above the people. Now, above the people is literal above the people. They built a platform for him to stand on. He's not above them in, in you know, spiritual anything or authority necessarily, but it's just he's above them because he talked about building this platform. And he opened it, and the people stood as he read it, and Ezra blessed the Lord and all the people said amen and amen, lifted their hands, bowed their heads, worshiped. And then you have all these people going through the crowd uh, while the, it says in, at the end of verse seven, it says these people helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book of the law of God clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Now here's what's happening, right? They, they, take the Bible that's being read and they read it clearly. And that what that word clearly is getting at is that the meaning of it has clarity. It's, it's got the, the proper interpretation. They give the sense of it, meaning the application of what they should do with it. And, and the people understand what's happening. And this is what the, the teaching of the Bible is meant to do. It's meant to help people understand and apply the Bible, right? It's, it's not that this book is, uh, just to be purely read without any thought or any application. It's actually meant to be taken, read, understood, and applied. Otherwise, what's the point of it, right? This, the Bible is 
God's word given to us for the purpose of godliness. That's what Paul writes to Timothy. And so we see that this being applied in this massive crowd of people, obviously uh, there's, there's a, a lot of need for other people to get involved in this and start to speak into what's happening. And that's what we see. So we're seeing though, that in this se- first section, the centrality of God's word, that God's word was central in their lives and in their worship. Now let's get to verse nine through 12. This is the second section of this passage. And it is, uh, I'll, well, I'll read it and then we'll, we'll talk about it. It says, Nehemiah, who was the governor and Ezra, the priest and the scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. What we're seeing in this second section is the result of the, of the preaching and teaching of God's word, which is the conviction of sin, which ultimately leads to celebration of the work of Christ. We see that the Bible convicts the people of their sin but then they're told to leave that behind and celebrate in the joy of the Lord. Now, what are we seeing here? This is a really interesting section. Uh, and what we're seeing is, is that the people, as they hear the word of the Lord, as they hear the law, they're, they're weeping. And actually in verse nine, we're told that Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites said to the people, this day is holy, do not mourn or weep. And we kinda, we're kind of taken aback, like, why? And then it says, because all the people were weeping as they heard the word of the Lord. So the, all the people are hearing God's law and they're weeping. And now they're being told by Ezra, Nehemiah, and the Levites to stop weeping. What's happening here? Well, what's happening is that the law, uh, as it's being read to these people, is working in their lives like a mirror. And they're seeing themselves up against it and they don't like what they see, right? They, they are seeing themselves through the lens of God's law and going, I don't measure up to this. I don't line to this. I'm not, this is not my life. And they're convicted of that. And it's leading them to sorrow, to weeping, to mourning over their own sin in their lives. But, but then Ezra and Nehemiah do something really fascinating. They command the people to stop it. They say, this is, this is a holy day to the Lord. Do not mourn or weep. And then they said, in verse 10, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to the Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So then the Levites calmed all the people saying, 
be quiet. That's how you calm someone down. Be quiet. Um, no, that's how the Levites did it. Be quiet. For this day is holy. Do not be grieved. They command the people to stop weeping. They do this. <laughs> and I think it's interesting. Actually, you kind of get a sense of what's happening when you, when you realize what the names of Ezra and Nehemiah mean. Ezra's name uh, means help is here. And Nehemiah's name is even more on the nose. It, it means God wipes away our tears. And these people, these two men, kind of as a one-two punch for the, for the people of Israel, Ezra comes first and goes, help is here. And Nehemiah comes later and goes, God's wiping away your tears. And, and here we see them begin to apply this to the people. And so they command them to stop crying and, to, and they command them to have a party instead. This is so crazy and so counterintuitive to us because no one that I've ever met would call the church a party. No one. No one would ever say, man, the church is the most fun thing I do all week long. It just isn't, it isn't the thing, like, right? And maybe it should be a little bit more enjoyable for us. And maybe if our hearts were, were right, they would, it would be. I don't know. But, but how many of us don't walk out of church? I hope it's not true here, but how many of you have walked out of church just feeling like a piece of garbage, right? And you're just, you're just torn down. And, and yet what actually should be happening is we are built up. One of the, I, had a, I have a pastor friend in Minneapolis who told me some, some t- occasionally people will come up to him after a sermon and say, man, pastor, that sermon was really convicting. And his response to them is, well, that's a bummer. That's not what, that's not the goal. Like the goal is not to purely convict. There's conviction, but that must lead to something else. There's law and there's gospel, right? We can't neglect neglect the law. Yes, we don't measure up to God's standards. True, absolutely true. It needs to be said. It needs to be understood. We're not perfect people. We're not just here with, with some sky fairy running the thing and making us all happy and all our dreams come true. True, but there's also gospel, good news of great joy. And that's what's being foreshadowed in this passage. Why is Ezra and Nehemiah and the Levites telling the people to stop their crying and go have a party, go eat some delicious meat and go have some wine and go give everybody who doesn't have the stuff they need, give them some of yours, celebrate. Why are they saying that? Well, because it's a foreshadowing of the joy we have in the gospel. They say it, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And this is the very first message of Jesus that we get in the gospel of Luke as the angels announce his birth to the shepherds. They say, we have brought you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Jesus Christ comes into the world and he turns everything upside down. The, the children's book we use at our home is called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And the story that Sally Lloyd-Jones, who wrote the book, she, she talks about this story, this, this part of Ezra and Nehemiah. And, and she talks about how um, the people were commanded to go have a party and, and celebrate. And, and then she points it this way. She says, the, the, the real party is still to come. It's still going to be 
in the future, right? The party that they're celebrating here is just a shadow of what the people of God will experience in fullness of joy. We get a foretaste of that. Even now, we don't have the fullness of joy because we still live in a sinful world. And sin is still a reality in our lives. And there is a time for weeping. There is a time to be convicted of our sin. But that has to be balanced with the grace of God that is greater than our sin. We should feel conviction, but we should also feel joy. These, these, these are uh, the, the kind of the, the antithesis, not the antithesis, but the, the, the paradox, I guess, of the Christian life. Is, it's, it's one of mourning and joy and but when you, when you understand the fullness of the gospel, how can we not have joy, right? Romans 8, 1, there's probably no more joyful verse in the Bible than there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. How can we read those words and not feel joy in our hearts? There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Amen. So we see the people hear the word of God. We see them convicted by the word of God. We see them uh, confronted by their conviction and, and told to stop it and go celebrate. Let's go into one more section, 13 through 18. It says, on the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each uh, on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths for from the day of Jeshua, that's a different spelling for Joshua, the son of Nun, that's the Joshua that came after Moses, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first to the last, he read from the book of the law of God, they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So he, here's what we're seeing happen. Um, the leaders of Israel, the, the leading men of Israel from all the tribes come together with Ezra to study the word of God. And, and they do this, um, and as they're doing this, I should say, as they're reading the, the word of God, they read about how the people of Israel are supposed to be doing something called the Feast of Booths. And the Feast of Booths was, was set up in the Old Testament law for the Old Testament people of God uh, to remember their journey through the wilderness the 40 years of wandering that God sent them in after Egypt. And they lived in temporary houses called booths. We'd call them tents. Some translations say the, the Feast of Tents. Um, 
But the idea is, is that they're living in these, these temporary structures. For 40 years, the people did this. And they were told to continue the practice uh, in the seventh month uh, for a week to live uh, not in their comfortable homes, but to live in a tent outside of their house as a way to commemorate and remember God's provision for them in the wilderness. And what the people of Israel, as they gathered to read God's word with Ezra, they realized, oh, shoot, we, we haven't done this. We haven't done this since Joshua. <laughs> like, that was a long time ago. And they're like, we, we're not in obedience to the word of God. And so they're like, oh, it's the seventh month. Let's do it. Let's get going. And so here they go. They proclaim in Israel Everybody get, get together a bunch of branches from these, from these leafy trees, build a booth outside your house or on your roof or in the public gates and squares and let's do this. And they did it and they listened to the word of God. So here, here's what we're seeing. Here's the, here is the principle that's happening here. We're seeing them, them being willing to conform their lives to what God's word says. And that's what we ought to do too. We are to conform our lives to God's word. Here's the deal. We read this book and we go, I don't, I don't live up to that. I'm not doing that in my life. That's not a part of my life. This isn't what I'm doing. And what we need to do is we need to course correct. Now, obviously we need to recognize something. The Old Testament is, not, is no longer meant to be applied in the same way it was for, the, for them because they were in the old covenant. Christ fulfills the old covenant for us. And so as Christians, we're not supposed to do the Feast of Booths or all these other, all these other things. That's all been accomplished for, for us in Christ. But there are lots of things that we see in the scriptures that call us to, to do or to be. And most of the time we fail to live up to those things because we're sinners. So what do we do with that? Well, we have one of two things we can do. We can either say, well, my life isn't aligned with what God's word is calling me to do, so the Bible's wrong. That's one way. Obviously not the way I'm advocating, right? But we do that. Almost everybody does that. Like, well, I'll just disregard it. But what we should do is actually the opposite. We should say, my life doesn't conform to God's word, so I'm wrong. And, and God's word is right. And so let me correct through the spirit, by the power of the gospel, not in our own strength, but let me course correct here. Let's confess our sins and repent and be drawn back into the fellowship with God. That's essentially what we're seeing happen here. They're, they're seeing the, the failure on their part and they seek to conform themselves to God's word. So as we get into this passage, I think it's, um, there's a lot to, to chew on here, obviously, but I think the, the overarching point of this passage is to get us to this, that, that God's word is the most central thing in our lives as Christians. We, we need to see it as the, the, the way in which God chooses to sanctify us and show us his, his will which means that we make course corrections as, as needed. We see that the word of God was vital to the ministry of Jesus. 
We see that the word of God was carried through in, in the teachings of the apostles. We see Paul at the very end of his life as he's passing the baton onto Timothy, the next generation of, of Christians to bring the word of God to the world. Paul says this in the, in the last chapter of Paul's final letter ever written before his death. He says in verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Notice that Paul says to Timothy, your, your job carrying forward for, for this thing is to preach the word. Preach it in season and out of season, when it's popular and when it's not. Notice that Paul actually goes on to say that there's a time that's coming when people will not endure sound teaching. And then Paul's answer to that is, so do it anyway. Whether it's popular or not. He says to preach the word in season and out of season. He doesn't say, oh, the people don't like the preaching of God's word. Well, then let's try something different. Let's do a different tactic. Let's try to get them in another way. No, there's a theological conviction rooted in the Old Testament all the way through the ministry of Jesus, through the Apostle Paul, now being passed on to Timothy, being passed on to us as it's written in the scriptures that leads us to the preaching and teaching of God's word as timeless and vital. We all need to sit under God's word. We need to find it um, and be convicted by it and we need to be conformed to it. And why is that? Well, because the Bible is about Jesus. The Bible tells us how Jesus lived and died and rose again to save sinners. It tells us that Jesus Christ lived the life I couldn't live and he died the death I should have died. And he rose again to secure my place and yours in heaven by faith and trust in him. That is what the Bible teaches us on the most foundational level. And the more we dive into this, the deeper we understand that and the more we can apply it to our lives. It's the, it is Jesus that the Bible gets us to. We're not worshipers of a book. We're worshipers of a God who gave us this book. And it is Jesus Christ who ultimately shows us who this God is. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that. Let me just take us there real quick. Hebrews 1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, meaning from the, the uh, death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ to this day, that's the last days when you get into the scriptures. He has spoken to us by his son. God has spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed the heir of all things and through whom he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
The Bible is about Jesus. His purification of our sins through his death on the cross. His constant ruling and reigning in the world. His, uh, his uh, demonstration of the very heart and character of God. This is what the Bible is, and that's why we come to it. That's why we need it, because it gets us to Jesus. We're going to take some time today to, to celebrate Jesus as we do every Sunday. We're going to celebrate him through singing. We're going to celebrate him through remembering his death on the cross as we eat and drink in remembrance of him. We're going to celebrate him because he's worthy, and we, and we know that he has saved us apart from any work we've done, apart from anything we've accomplished, he has saved us. And that's worth celebrating. That is always worth celebrating. Let's do that today. So let me pray. Jesus, thank you for the joy that you have given us. For the joy of the Lord is our strength. And we pray that we would know that, live in that, rest in that. God, that we would be conformed more and more to your word, we pray that for your help in that as well. And we ask that we would respond with, with joyful hearts to you. We pray in, in Jesus' name. Amen.